Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 8th of February, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. And we also have a surprise guest today. OK, we'll get straight on with uh, Well, the good news that uh, Vladimir Zelensky is in the country today. Uh, we've captioned this. Is that a gun in your pocket or are you just pleased to see me? Uh, because uh, they were giving each other hugs and kisses uh, as Zelensky got off the plane this morning. Uh, Zelensky is currently, as we speak, uh, giving uh, some kind of presentation in Westminster Hall in Parliament. Uh, and so the House of Commons was suspended for that uh, so that everybody could attend. Uh, and uh, so what are they going to be talking about? Well, apparently this is all about the UK stepping up its delivery of lethal aid uh, to Ukraine and preparing to train fighter jet pilots and Marines as well as the cannon fodder that we've been training so far. This, this, is, this is just nonsense, Mike. Aircraft, F-16s, this is nonsense. Training Marines on the ground, this is also nonsense. But uh, I'll cover a little bit today. Yeah, we'll be talking about it a bit more later on. And apparently uh, uh, Rishi Sunak is going to be offering Ukraine longer range capabilities. No explanation of exactly what that means. Uh, uh, I, I was just going to say, with the love-in of this picture, the one thing that is, is clearly excluded is anything to do with the people in UK, um, you know, Prime Minister and Zelensky hugging each other. Um, they're not interested in anything to do with uh, what's happening in this uh, country or the people in this country. No. OK, well, uh, yesterday's news, of course, was that there was a reshuffle and, uh, well, some government departments were, uh, well, a new one was created. We now have a Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero. Uh, and uh, to, uh, one government department was split, which was uh, culture, media and sport. Now reverts to culture, media and sport and digital has been taken out to create a new department for science uh, and uh, science, innovation and technology. Uh, so uh, the Right Honourable Lucy Fraser, KCMP, uh, becomes Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. And apparently that is going to be uh, all about focusing on supporting our world leading cultural and creative industries to thrive and creating a broadcasting and media system fit for the 21st century. I'm not sure why government feels the need to create that, uh, other than the fact that they want to be in control of the narrative. Uh, but uh, uh, Michelle Donnellan then has moved from uh, DCMS to uh, this new Department uh, for Science, Innovation and Technology. And uh, she takes the uh, online safety bill with her. So uh, she will be pursuing that uh, because we've got to keep the British people, especially children, safe online. So that's good news. Uh, so anyway, a uh, bit of a reshuffle yesterday and it was really only, uh, I thought, interesting in the sense of uh, the online safety bill. We'll see how that progresses through Parliament over the next couple of weeks. Um, but in the meantime, uh, the Bank of England and the Treasury have announced a new digital pound. This is the central bank digital currency. They've announced a consultation paper on it. We'll come on to the consultation in itself in a second. Um, so this is what they're saying. Let's have a look at uh, some of the, the content from this uh, document that they've published. First of all, they're saying that cash payments have declined while card use has accelerated and therefore we might as well roll out a central bank digital currency. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, well, they have a model for the digital pound. It's gonna be a public-private partnership. Of course it is. Uh, anybody that doesn't understand the implications of this, uh, have, have a search on the UK column website for Ian Davis's article on, on global, the global public-private partnership. 
Um, it's going to be used by households and businesses. It's going to be public digital money issued by a central platform operated by the Bank of England and so on. You can read through those yourself. But the one that I uh, find interesting there, down the bottom left, uh, the Bank of England and the government would not see any personal data. This is their claim. Um, so let's have a look at a little bit of the text. Private sector companies, uh, which could be banks or approved non-bank firms, uh, would be able to integrate into the central digital pound infrastructure uh, and provide the in, uh, interface between the bank, that's the Bank of England, and users, that's you and I. Uh, they would do this by offering digital pass-through wallets to end users. The wallets would be integrated into their other services. Uh, they're known as pass-through wallets, hereafter referred simply as wallets, uh, because the user's holdings of digital pounds are recorded anonymously on the bank's core ledger in order to safeguard their privacy, uh, and the wallet simply passes instructions to the user, from the user to the core ledger. So that's the claim. It's all going to be perfectly private. There's not going to be any uh, efforts, David, uh, to uh, perhaps direct people's behavior in certain directions by the... How they spend their money. How they say, exactly, yes. So, so what you're telling me, Mike, is even if the government, say, suspected there was taxation fraud going on and they could use this data or or acquire data from this system in order to stamp down on this reprehensible behavior by entirely criminal organizations. Or maybe people were engaging in commerce that the government didn't approve of and they wanted to stamp down on that. Um, they wouldn't do it because they promised. Is, is, that, is that what we've been asked to believe? Uh, yes, uh, and why would you disbelieve it? It's the government. Well, call me cynical, Mike, but um, I seem to remember them saying one or two things before that turned out not to be true. Indeed. Uh, so let's just remind ourselves uh, what's driving this. Uh, and of course, it is the, well, it begins with the Bank for International Settlements. Here's uh, Benoit Couré. Uh, the financial system is shifting under, her under our feet, he said a couple of years ago. The time has passed for central banks to get going. Uh, this is the kind of architecture we're talking about, digital central bank. Money coming in two forms, wholesale central bank digital currencies and retail central bank digital currencies. The wholesale are for interbank uh, money transfers and the retail are for us to use day to day on a day to day basis. Uh, we're talking about a public private partnership, HSBC, uh, very keen to get involved in that. And just so we understand the scale, HSBC is working with central banks in the United Kingdom, France, Canada, Singapore, China, Hong Kong, Thailand and the UAE to explore plans for digital currencies. And it's not just on this side of the Atlantic, Jerome Powell here. Uh, the Fed is working proactively to evaluate whether to issue a CBDC and if so, in what form. Uh, and back in November, uh, they launched a 12-week CBDC pilot program with major banks. So they're clearly thinking along the same lines of a public-private partnership. But it goes even further because, of course, back in November last year, this was a core uh, tenet of the or a core uh, item on the at the G20 Bali summit. Uh, we welcome the successful completion of the G20 Tech Sprint 2022. They said a joint initiative with the Bank for International Settlements, Settlements Innovation Hub, which has contributed to the debate on the most practical and feasible solutions to implement CBDCs. And we should just briefly look at what else was on that, because I think if we consider what I'm about to show you, this is all part of the same policy. So vaccine passports were also being discussed. Digital ID, of course, goes hand in hand with CBDCs. Um, so vaccine pa passports and mRNA 
uh, vaccines uh, expressions of the same policy, in my opinion. Uh, and also, let's remember that Rishi wants to renew the City of London's position as the world's preeminent financial centre because, as Mark Carney said uh, a couple of years ago, we'll not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's uh, have a look at uh, the, um, the Economic Affairs Committee uh, about a year, just over a year ago, publishing this central bank digital currencies a solution in search of a problem was what they were uh, calling their report. And they were discussing some of the security risks posed by CBDC. Uh, first of all, they said individual accounts could be compromised through weaknesses in cybersecurity. Second, the centralized CBDC ledger, which would be a critical piece of national infrastructure, could be a target for attack from hostile state and non-state actors. While no design could guarantee absolute security, uh, any CBDC system will need to be adaptable to emerging security threats and so on. Uh, there may be some benefits, they said, to wholesale CBDCs. Uh, the committee recommends that the Joint Task Force consults on the case for a wholesale CBDC alongside its 2022 retail CBDC consultation. And finally, the point that I wanted to highlight out of this was uh, uh, that you know Britain needs to be taking the lead, is what they were saying. So they were raising, David, a couple of potential issues with it, but absolutely pushing forward with the notion that Britain needs to be out front telling the rest of the world how to do it. Of course, the, the underlying assumption here is that the banking system is your friend, right? Which is fine unless you've had any experience of the banking system, in which case you might not be convinced that that's the case. So what we have at the moment with cash is we have the ability to take our money out of the system. There is this glorious and beautiful thing called the bank run, which is basically the loss of confidence on the part of the people in the institutions. And... Um, when this happens, the people can actually bring down the institutions via the bank run. And they can certainly withdraw the money and they can hold it in the mattress, you know, under the mattress, whatever, whatever you know, hiding place you, you prefer. Now, this prevents certain things that the government until recently certainly wanted to do, like negative interest rate policy. If you hold reserves of money, those reserves dwindle not just via inflation, but dwindle in absolute terms to encourage you to spend your money to stimulate the economy. This is a policy decision that they wanted to have. The reason that we have a target of 2% interest rate, 2% inflation and not 0% inflation is so that they can set uh, real interest rates negative and essentially erode savings and encourage people to spend more when they want to do this. This is, of course, then controlling your economic decisions and stealing your money. All of this becomes much more much more feasible with a central bank digital currency because you can't exit the banking system with your resources. This is a loss of freedom, is it not? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but uh, we, we just should mention that uh, they are absolutely, just as they're saying they're going to protect our privacy, uh, they're saying that cash will remain. Um, so in the meantime, cash is still there. We should encourage people to continue to use cash as much as possible. Uh, but just to finish this little segment, uh, the uh, consultation itself uh, begins with the question or the statement, the digital pound, a new form of money for households and businesses, consultation response. So they're inviting views on the consultation uh, paper. The deadline for responses is the 7th of June. Uh, but people shouldn't wait until then. Let's uh, get the responses in now. Here's the address if you want to uh, to do that. Uh, and uh, well, I just would encourage everybody to get involved in that because this is probably the most 
you know, in terms of a policy, the most critical uh, consultation that we've seen in quite a long time. Uh, we, we can also say that we are seeing some really good uh, things happening. We know there are shops uh, now designating themselves as cash-only shops, and this is uh, this is quite something. It shows some real confidence in shop owners, or, albeit I believe small shop owners, small shops, private shops, um, that are saying, "No, we're not going to play this game. We're going to go the other way and say we're delighted to receive customers and cash." Uh, so, David, let's move on to tax. Well, yes, it's just a little update. There's many movements starting to occur and, and directions of travel starting to occur in tax. Um, different ones on each side of the Atlantic. Um, over in America, here we have NASDAQ money reporting. Um, there's an attempt to put, be careful about the naming of acts in both in Britain and America, the Fair Tax Act into uh, into effect. Now, this has uh, got the, the deeply happy effect of abolishing the in, Inland Revenue Service. What a happy day that would be. But the quid pro quo is uh, a national sales tax of 30% on more or less everything you buy to replace the income tax. So um, this has been pushed by uh, the Republicans in the House. Um, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has agreed to bring the bill to a vote. That vote uh, will fail and it won't go ahead. And even if it succeeds, um, Biden is uh, promising to um, to uh, vote it down, um, to veto it. But uh, it does show that at least there is a push to try and get some tax reform uh, in the United States. Um, it's interesting to note here uh, on the next slide, it says... Uh, the it's it's been put forward partly in response to the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, with previous warnings about how the name acts is uh, applies here, um, because the Inflation Reduction Act gave the IRS eighty billion dollars extra to hire eighty-seven thousand extra IRA IRS sorry Freudian slip IRS agents to uh, crack down on tax evaders. Uh, and I would point out that. Uh, Back um, uh, 200 odd years ago, uh, when Britain put three extra tax agents into America, into the continental United States, three, um, this was one of the reasons uh, cited for having a revolution and independence. And uh, here they're hiring 87,000 without a murmur, it would appear, of uh, dissent, apart from the uh, Republicans wanting not to do that. Now. That's the situation in America. We've got some uh, citizen movement, some populist movement, trying to get tax reform. There's no sign of that in Europe at all, where the inherent bankrupt nature of the governments is becoming ever more apparent, and the taxation uh, net is being expanded over and over again to drag in more and more of the real economy, and it's now going after anything that's basically left, and this means pensions. So the Telegraph here reports uh, how the tax-raising blob, good name for the government, is coming for your pension. It writes, the state and public sector pensions are becoming unaffordable and threatening to undermine public finances. Uh, we have to accept that the triple walk must go, the pension age will have to rise faster than the government's currently telling us, but why attack private pensions? Well, they're coming for those two, it would seem, an FT advisor is also highlighting this. 
They're saying the relatively high levels of personal wealth enjoyed by the over 50s could face increased levels of taxation and a further increase in the age of which the state pension becomes payable. So expect to work longer, expect the government to come after your taxation, uh, after your pensions for extra taxation, because at some point it's going to be the only reserve of real wealth, of real value, um, that will be left to plunder. And when that's the case and things get really nasty, plunder it, they will. Yes, indeed. I was just going to say, I was getting very nervous. You're talking about banking and taxation. And uh, what it seems to be happening is if you do that, David, um, you are branded anti-Semitic, as we will hear a little bit later in the news. So I'm glad we got through that section without any unpleasantness. Oh, it could still come. Anyway, uh, if you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share material we find you find on the various platforms. Uh, that would be very much appreciated. And David, very briefly, uh, just a quick note on uh, this article. Yes, I mean, science not soup. This is Dr. James too, an excellent interview on uh, origin of life research. has already sparked a lot of uh, correspondence from people in the scientific community uh, and, uh, and, and wider UK column uh, viewers. Uh, so please enjoy that. Uh, Dr. Tour is uh, always entertaining, always passionate, and the scientific argument he makes is a very fundamental one that needs to be grasped. Okay, thank you for that, David. Well, let's uh, bring on a little email exchange between the UK column and initially the Department of Health and Social Care. But uh, I was asking questions about the Patient Safety Commissioner. Let's have a look at how this little exchange went. Now, I'm communicating with a gentleman called Ryan, who's part of their press team. He was very helpful, so just bear that in mind. Um, Dear Ryan, thank you for taking my telephone call. I'd like to ask the Patient Safety Commissioner, Henrietta Hughes, a number of questions relating to her role regarding patient safety and in particular reasons for non-attendance at MHRA board meetings and parliamentary committees where issues of patient safety have been raised with regard to sodium valparate and other pharmaceutical products where patient deaths and harm has occurred. I'm particularly interested to understand her role and function as patient safety commissioner alongside both the MHRA and the Commission on Human Medicines. In the first instance, I am unable to find any details of her office and department, although there is one mail email address for on the DHS DHSC website, this email does not appear to be answered. I note that Ms Hughes was appointed by the Medicines and Medical Devices Act 2021, brackets Royal Assent 11th February 2021, following and further to the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review, First Do No Harm, published in July 2020 by Baroness Cumberledge. Against this background and timescale, it appears unusual that her office and department is not clearly signposted for both the media and the public. Please can you direct me to details of the Patient Safety Commissioner's office and department, and would you also be kind enough to provide me with the telephone number for her PA, as well as a telephone number for her press team? Now, you notice this was exchange was taking place on the 17th of uh, January. Well, in no time at all, well, 2nd of February, in fact, um, I got this response. Dear Mr. Gerrish, thank you for your inquiry. The Patient Safety Commissioner does not attend the MHRA board meetings as she is not a member of the board nor employed by the MHRA. She does attend parliamentary committees when she's asked to. 
the relationship between the work of the PSC and the MHRA and that with the Commission on Human Medicines are currently in development and these will result in a memorandum of understanding in due course if they are deemed necessary. The Office of the Patient Safety Commissioner was set up four months ago and is currently working remotely. We are hoping to secure office space in the near future. So if we just sort of summarize the reality of this, the Patient Safety Commissioner doesn't attend the MHRA board meetings, which are principally about safety to protect the, the public. She does attend parliamentary committees, but only when asked. Uh, the relationships between the safety work of the um, PSC and the MHR MHRA and the Commission on Human Medicines are in development, so they don't exist at the moment. And the office of the PSC was set up four months ago and is hoping to secure office space. So if we just uh, follow this shambles through, this was some of the quotes from Henrietta Hughes back in July 2022. She was humbled to be appointed as the first patient safety commissioner. It was a vital role recommended first do no harm and it will make a difference to the safety of patients in relation to medicines and medical devices. Patients' voices need to be at the heart of the design and delivery and she wants to pay tribute to the incredible courage, persistence and compassion of all those who give, gave evidence to the report, their families and everyone who continues to campaign tirelessly for safer treatments. She is a passionate lady. I will work collaboratively collaboratively with patients, the healthcare system and others so that all patients receive the information they need, all patients' voices are heard and the system responds quickly to keep people safe. But the reality is that today, 8th, uh, 8th February 2023, we're some 18 months further on. She doesn't know her safety role. She doesn't have an office. She doesn't know how she's going to work with the other organisations. In fact, she has achieved nothing to keep patients safe. So this is the state of government over health safety. Is it any wonder we've got so many problems in other areas of government? Uh, Debbie, maybe that's a good point to bring you in. Um, you've also tried to get in communication with this lady without success. Yes, it's uh, she doesn't have the infrastructure. I received a reply the same as uh, you, Brian. Uh, she doesn't uh, have any infrastructure. But it's interesting because remember at the select committee for Valprate um, and Primados, the question was asked, is, is the patient safety commissioner, does she have the resources she needs to carry out the job? And Baroness Cumberledge said no. So it's smoke and mirrors. She doesn't exist. Yeah, well, she's working remotely, apparently how remote that is we we don't know so take us through pulse oh well look uh, this is just a slide that i've thrown in because it's just so unbelievable so take a screenshot everybody and send this around twitter because this is astonishing so steve barkley he loves apps we've talked about apps before so now we're going to get a new one this is going to be for convenience so you're going to be able to order an ambulance now folks you can order an ambulance via the app um, if you want it for a basic service for superficial injuries, that's fine. But you could pay a little bit more if you want a premium service. It's an Uber. It's an Uber taxi. So if you want a premium service for someone that's maybe experiencing a cardiac arrest, you can pay a bit extra. This app will apparently allow an ambulance to be tracked. However, 
the drivers will be able to cancel the call out if they think it's too tricky. Well, that's that's really good to know, isn't it? And then even worse, I mean, honestly, I can't believe that it's it, we're even reading this. But Mr. Barclay also sets out plans for drive through emergency departments branded McKay and E. The BMA is reviewing the plans and will advise GPs. I mean, what can I say? Is, what is can this, I say? Is this the end? Is this the coming end of the 999 emergency service, uh, Debbie? Do you think everything be moved yes. to an app? Yes, I, I actually do, or, or chatbots. And it's going to be interesting because I will be interviewing a paramedic in the very near future. And that's one of the questions that I will be putting to them is do they think their jobs are, are going to completely, we're going to have autonomous vehicles and now we're going to have apps to order them. Crazy. Uh, Debbie, I'll just come in here and say that uh, last couple of days, tragically, an elderly lady fell over in the doorway of my local shop. She hit her head. There was very quickly a lot of blood everywhere. The GP surgery, which is very adjacent, one of the GPs did come very quickly and said, well, uh, I'm not going to say call an ambulance because it won't get it won't get here in time. And he encouraged the lady's friend, who I think was uh, a younger and had a car, take her to the hospital now. So the system is over and the GPs know it. But of course, we're not discussing the health and safety of patients and people in UK. We're discussing more guns, weapons, armaments for Zelensky in Ukraine. It's it's quite obscene. Uh, so sorry, sorry. You yes. take, take us through seventy-five Brits killed by COVID vaccines. Just lead us through this well, segment, uh, Debbie. We've been asking for a long time about the excess mortality, haven't we, on all of these excess deaths that we're seeing? So I was pretty alarmed when um, I saw this article in the Mail Online exclusive revealed just. And can we just highlight that word just? because it's obscene, in my opinion. Just 75 Brits have been killed by COVID vaccines, as experts hail data as proof jabs are incredibly safe and not, in capital letters, behind surging excess deaths. It also goes on to say that leading experts told the Mail Online the low death toll was proof the life vaccine, the life saving vaccines are incredibly safe. They also admitted it could be a slight undercount. I mean, I am absolutely horrified by this. Um, not only have they written the word just, I mean, 75, it, one is too many, actually. And we know that there are thousands, literally thousands. Um, and just to explain on the um, article that I just showed you, here's a graph that just will explain there how they've come to those conclusions just 75 brits have been killed by covid vaccines official statistics show it equates to roughly one death for every 2.1 million jabs dished out in the uk so that's the graph but you know what i want to also highlight is a, a paper that Mark Skidmore uh, wrote he's an economist and this paper was um it, it was highlighted by Dr. Asim Malhotra, by Jordan Peterson, um, clearly saying that the vaccination deaths were far more. And if you go and look into that paper, he's talking about hundreds of thousands. Now, clearly, you can see if you freeze the, freeze the frame before, that paper has been discredited. 
So already the fact checkers are out, the academics are out saying, we're, we're not having any of this, we're just going to ignore it. So that took me on to find a very troubling article called Munchausen's by Internet. Munchausen's by Internet is rife on social media and peaked during COVID-19 pandemic, psychiatrist says. So Munchausen syndrome is a psychological and behavioral condition where someone fakes, exaggerates, or induces symptoms of illnesses in order to get attention and sympathy. Munchausen's by internet is when it happens online. Now, who is this, this psychiatrist that has coined this phrase? And we can go on and find that the psychiatrist is someone called Dr. Mark Feldman. Um, he coined it in 2000. Um, after witnessing cases in virtual support groups. And you can just see, I won't read it all out, but he's a very busy boy, uh, Dr. Skidmore, um, sorry, uh, Dr. Feldman, uh, in, in the media. You can see there he's been in all sorts of, uh, on sorts of programs and in media, but also he's a member of the work group for the um, DSM-5 group. Now, this, I could go into a whole program about the DSM-5 and the American psychiatrists that, that start that, but we won't go there for now. But thanks to Dr. Christian Buckland, he pointed me to the next article, which you'll see is very relevant, which is from The Independent, which says, thanks, Pfizer, the weird world of shakes, health, anxiety, and illness online. And here they're mentioning Munchausen syndrome. Well, Munchausen syndrome originally was discredited by uh, Professor Roy Meadows, and it was replaced by factitious disorder. And you can see there on the right that uh, um, a counselling directory member, Lauren Calladine, says, a new trend has developed called Munchausen's by internet. The syndrome is also known as fictitious Fictitious, I think it's actually factitious disorder, but it, of course, intrinsically hard to prove or disprove. Yet many therapists and psychiatrists now believe, like Caladine, that the instant gratification someone experiencing this disorder can get from likes, comments and shares may drive them to create a whole image or personality based on chronic illness. Now, I went to look up Lauren Caladine because I thought, well, this is very interesting. Dr. Buckland had asked me to look at this article, and I did. And I found out that Lauren Caladine really is a, a nobody. She has a counseling and psychotherapy website. Um, we've got some, I'm presuming it's the rainbow uh, flag there. I'm not quite sure what she's representing there. I'm not quite sure what the pale blue and pink flag is, but she charges. £50 um, a session to counsel people. Now, this article that I've just highlighted is interesting because also it, it kind of talks from different perspectives of different psychologists. And another psychologist that was mentioned in this article is a Dr. Laura Kerwin. And she says, believe it or not, she stresses that she can't speak to the motivation of those making the Pfizer Shakes videos because she's never spoken to them, nor personally met or assessed them. She can't actually speak to whether the vaccines are causing these tremors or not. Now, this is extremely concerning. And Dr. Christian Buckland has said quite rightly, why didn't they ask him? Why didn't they ask the COVID, um, the, the VIB, uh, the Vaccine Injured Bereaved Group and the UK CV Family Group? Why 
did they not ask them? Because this article has been out, put out to, to make out that people with vaccine injuries that are having seizures and shakes and very genuine symptoms, as we've seen many of them crushing chest pains, they're being made out to be anxiety, Munchausen's by internet, exaggerating their symptoms. So for anybody that's asking, I would really like to say, please go and speak to Dr. Christian Buckland or Charlotte or anybody from UKCV family or VIP, and then they will receive the truth. These symptoms are very real. Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. And what was in my head as you were speaking is, of course, that Munchausen by proxy was used many, uh, many years ago by social services to take children away from particularly mothers who they branded to have the condition. Absolutely outrageous. And to have people that have suffered the reality of vaccine adverse reaction, serious effects, to suggest that we, you know, you're your what's the word you're muddying the waters in order to uh, has somebody really got it or you're just somebody who's putting it on and claiming this is another very very dangerous use of psychology to attack the population in this country well uh debbie let's just uh, have a quick advertisement for your latest blog uh yeah thank you mike um uh, yeah my blog um it's um, a lot of it is health. But you know what, if you've got asthma, you might want to read this week's blog, uh, because there's something new on the horizon, and it's not good. Uh, buses are, uh, if you're looking for a big a blue bus coming your way with NHS written all over it, there's some um, little stories in there that you might find very interesting. And also, uh, the scared of the NHS, the National Health Service, I just wanted to plug that article, because we will be coming on to talk about that in the near future. So just two things I wanted to highlight. Thank you. Okay, uh, let's move back to the uh, issue of the vaccine supply operations lead job that we uh, talked about on Monday's program. Uh, now, the, the application uh, had to be in if you wanted that job by the 14th of February 2023. But of course, that job was pulled uh, from the uh, from the website um, and uh, has been replaced with the vaccine supply operations lead job. It's exactly the same job. But now you've got till the 21st of February to apply because uh, they had to take the old job down. Uh, and therefore, you've got another week to apply. So if we look at the original text, uh, it's, it was talking about the Vaccines and Countermeasures Response Department being part of the National Infection Service Directorate. So they've changed this text a little bit. Uh, the Vaccines and Countermeasures Response Team is now part of the Commercial Directorate of the UK Health Security Agency. So I thought that was quite interesting. We're, we're certainly thinking in terms of commerce and profits here. Uh, then further on down the article, uh, the original text had said that uh, uh, that the role was all about providing accurate and timely reports for a range of stakeholders during what is expected to be the UK's largest vaccination programme, which will be delivered at pace and will be a key ministerial priority. And I was very interested to know why that text was included in this particular advertisement. Uh, and of course, the uh, quickest flash did not reply to my questions on this, but nonetheless, they've changed that text as well. Uh, so they're now saying that it is uh, a post to support operation, operational activity, but there seems to be a gap, a space between uh, operation and all. So uh, there you go. Uh, they can't even get this one right, uh, including providing accurate and timely reports for a range of stakeholders for the ongoing COVID-19 vaccination program. So they've changed this text uh, completely to remove uh, the 
offending text. They don't um, like exposure, basically. When you look be. into what they're doing and you ask the simple questions, just like with the Patient Safety Commissioner, they start to go wobbly. And this is why UK Column encourages viewers and listeners to make the effort to challenge these authorities in a, in a very precise, careful, measured way because it has a huge impact, particularly when a lot of people do it. So, um, Debbie, let's move on to the subject of GB News, which is, um, well, it's under a huge amount of pressure at the moment, as we will see, because it's been daring to talk about vaccine adverse reactions. But before we go there, you were flagging up some interesting connections between Bill Gates and GB News. Take us through that. Yeah, well, very quickly, just to remind people what we were talking about um, last week, which was a very good article from Dan Wooden. Um, if Bill Gates and the WHO are allowed to take control of the international pandemic policy, we're in deep trouble, says Dan Wooden. Completely agree with him. Then we were looking at the funding stream of GB News as well. And we found out that um, the End Fund and the Luminous Fund, um, which are involved in, in the, the whole funding of GB News were funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and then if you remember, I was sort of I was sort of hoping that Mark Stern was going to be back soon because he's done a great job of highlighting vaccine injuries. And um, and I was worried that GB News weren't running with the vaccine story and the kind of dropping COVID. And I was a little bit concerned. And then all of a sudden, after we were talking about this last week, Mark Stern put an announcement out um, and I'm just very interested to see and hear what he was saying with regards to Ofcom. So we've got a little bit of video, I think, um, yes, of, that we, Mark Stern made. Sorry, Brian. We, we have uh, we have Debbie and we're just going about we're just about to show that. But just a little bit of an introduction to that video. Um, uh, several people flagged up this lady, Dominic Samuels who tweeted out some comments about GB News. Uh, this one said, this is genuinely terrifying. Any debate about what's going on is now deliberately being painted as anti-Semitic. And we'll come on to that a little bit later. Uh, but the other one here, the truth on why my friend Mark Stein online isn't back on GB News after he suffered two heart attacks. They lied to him, used his medical condition against him and tried to force him to comply with Ofcom censorship rules even holding him liable, how low can you get? So against that little introductory background, let's have a listen to the film clip. Ventricles are up to it, uh, but it won't be on GB News. The, the state of play uh, between me and GB News is uh, that they have sent me a contract. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that Stephen Crowder thing where you read out the terms of your contract because uh, I don't think that makes, personally think, makes for great television. So I'm just going to uh, skim a couple of clauses. These are the ones. People have noticed a change. Now this came up. Uh, I was already set to return to GB News and uh, the uh, habitual liar who runs the joint uh, then uh, decided that uh, we needed a defibrillator in the studio for me to be able to go back uh, and then uh, a lady who uh, works on the show said no problem defibrillators are us uh, sending one round in 20 minutes then he decided something else so the state of play at the moment is that he's sent me a contract uh, 
It's a guy called uh, Angelus Frangopoulos, the CEO of GB News. And the contract's very, he's chosen to change the terms uh, by which we do the show, which uh, would be stressful, uh, but I, you know, I've had two heart attacks, so I laugh at stress. I scoff at stress. You don't stress me out. You may be a homicidal maniac intent to bringing on a third fatal heart attack, but you'll have to do better than this. But I did think it was interesting in light of what's happened at GB News. There's this new clause, editorial responsibility. For the avoidance of doubt, as the Ofcom license holder, uh, GB News has editorial responsibility for The Mark Stein Show and all content produced for GB News uh, by the presenter and the U.S. producers. Therefore, the parties agree that GB News's editorial decisions shall prevail, uh, which I wouldn't really mind. <laughs> but I remember we had a little Ofcom uh, uh, back and forth about 10 minutes before I went on air uh, a couple of months back. So we're getting into the meat of it there that in the background we've got Ofcom and Ofcom is the one, of course, threatening with withdrawal of licenses if media companies don't stay on the approved government line. So this is, we could say it's covert censorship because most people don't actually see it, but real pressure being brought onto GB News because they've been talking about some very interesting subjects, including people dying and being damaged by vaccines. But let's move on through because um, GB News is also now faced with attack by The Guardian. And uh, what's uh, We've got The Guardian. Well, Jewish group and MPs urge GB News to stop indulging conspiracy theories. Fears anti-Semitic tropes are being spread after host Neil Oliver discusses plan to impose one world government. Isn't that the rules-based international order, Mike? Maybe, but if I say it, I may be accused of anti-Semitism by The Guardian. Uh, so here's the article. People really need to have a look at this. Uh, so the UK's leading Jewish organisation and a group of MPs have called on GB News and the media regulator Ofcom to tackle the broadcaster's indulgence of conspiracy theories. Criticism grow comes as the channel faces increasing scrutiny over its mix of serious news with programmes that delve heavily into conspiracies about areas including COVID vaccines, um, and a plot to create a world government. And then it goes on to talk about the uh, Board of uh, Deputies of British Jews. Um, but that's uh, the main bit there. Mention the COVID vaccines and, and you're going to come into trouble. Uh, it goes on. It says, Oliver, who delivers trademark, trademark monologues to camera, used the show last Saturday to discuss what he called a silent war by generations of politicians to take total control of the people and impose a one world government. Because he dared to discuss this, uh, The Guardian uh, brings in silent weapons for quiet wars and then says, because it mentions Rothschild banking dynasty, this is an anti-Semitic trope. This is truly disgraceful stuff for The Guardian. But it goes on to say on the same show, one of Oliver's guests was a man called William Katie, introduced as a constitutional expert who's a supporter of a fringe campaign group called the New Chartist Movement. Um, it does say that um, Will Keats' uh, focus is on the supposed 
primacy of common law over parliament. Note the phrase, suppose primacy of common law over parliament, which has no crossover with anti-Semitic ideas. So it says there's no crossover and then it smears the whole article back into everything to do with uh, anti-Semitic um, uh, content. So I think this is one of the uh, most disgraceful articles I've ever seen by The Guardian. We just follow it through. Here's Ofcom, of course. Ofcom is understood to be looking into whether it should investigate Oliver's show on Saturday after a complaint. So you mentioned the vaccines, the safety of vaccines. Here's uh, Stein mentioned here. And uh, what is The Guardian going to do is brand you as anti-Semitic. Here's William Kate, and it's, he is quoted in the article as saying, it seems a shame that rather than focus on the important issues I raised in the interview with Neil, in which so many in which so many people appeared to be interested, and he, he was talking about common law versus supposed sovereignty of parliament, you, the Guardian, seem to be embarking on a piece about anti-Semitism. I do not con condone anti-Semitism. Sorry, start again. I do not condone anti-Semitism, but nor do I support the use of the subject to detract from other important issues. So he's got to defend himself against something which he is not, which is anti-Semitic, because of the way that The Guardian has smeared this. Uh, here's the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Their opinion, of course, has to be printed, even though it's anonymous. Highly concerning that GB News continues to air a show which embraces all manner of conspiracy theories. Somewhat inevitably, some of these of those invited onto the show represent organisations that promote anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Somebody is very frightened if you start talking about banking in particular or vaccine damage. And then it says if the channel will not act, we expect that Ofcom will. So Ofcom is the big stick in the background. If you're not familiar with the Board of Deputies of British Jews, go to their website and have a look at their mission. They say they represent Jews uh, within the community in Britain. Um, that is their statement. How many they represent, I don't know. Um, but also we had uh, Nicola Richards, Conservative MP for Bromwich East, co-chair of the all-party group on anti-Semitism. She said media diversity is incredibly important, but not at the expense of professional standards. These developments should be of concern to GB's news editors, owners and producers, and I hope they'll be careful, carefully reviewing them. With any public platform, there's a responsibility not to open the door to conspiratorial anti-Semitism or other misinformation. No doubt Ofcom will be keeping a close eye on developments at GB News, but let's hope that the channel will get its house in order. Uh, Co-chair, uh, and there she is as co-chair of the all-party group on anti-Semitism. So, David, I'm going to come over to you uh, for a very quick comment. Uh, but my goodness, the cat's out of the bag. GB News has been brave enough to get onto some subjects of great importance to the nation, vaccine safety. And as a result, they are now to be attacked by Ofcom and branded anti-Semitic. It's, uh, it's very, very interesting to see this unfold. Well, it is indeed. Few comments. Right, the Board of Deputies of British Jews represent Jews in Britain. There's a word missing from that sentence. And the word is badly, right? This is an appalling decision, one of many. 
um, on this particular area. The person who put this most clearly was Gillard Artsman, who we've interviewed several times in UK column. Um, and he called it pre-traumatic stress disorder, right? There's this, there's this, this strange attitude of looking for problems where none exist and a constant, a constant heightened state of fear over what might happen in the future. This is not rational behavior. And look at what they've done, right? So GB News have talked about, um, about international movements that, that work against the nation and against the nation state. These, these are undeniably there. We talk about them all the time. Uh, they've talked about vaccine damage. We've seen, you can go to the protests round about Britain and see the vaccine damaged people, the people who are grieving lost loved ones. This is not a conspiracy theory, this is real. But you're not allowed to do real. Real's banned, real's dangerous. So they can't have real. So what do they do? They, they, they go after GB News, they go after Neil Oliver, who, who was criticizing generations of British politicians. And they don't really, they don't actually think Neil Oliver's an anti-Semite, but they'll smear him because it's effective. And they'll smear anyone who goes on his program because they think it's effective. And if he's ever spoken to anyone they've previously smeared, then they'll smear him by association with that person. Because once you're banned, once you're no platformed, you're, 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 you're persona non grata and no one can touch you. You're the tar baby. This is appalling behaviour, right? The Board of Deputies of British Jews should conduct themselves in a better manner. They should have higher standards of evidential basis before smearing people in public. And they shouldn't try to manipulate the instruments of the state of coercion Right, for their own narrow political agenda. It's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. So I must admit, I really feel um, that uh, GB News, Neil Oliver et al. have been extremely badly served here. And of course, Ofcom has not even accepted that there's a, there's a charge worth investigating. They're only considering whether to investigate, but that's enough for The Guardian to run the headline Neil Oliver, GB News, anti-Semitism, and that's the job done. That's the object of the exercise. Yeah, David, thank you very much for that. There's a lot more to say on that subject, and we'll do that um, in future UK column news. Let's just bring the BBC in, because if we're talking appalling reporting, we need to have the BBC on screen. I've mentioned over quite a few days now the fact that the war in Ukraine has been largely brushed from people's minds because it's not going well and the Ukrainians are taking huge casualties. But this caught my attention this morning because, of course, the BBC can now have its uh, front page website full of death. Uh, the BBC loves death and the earthquake is now going to deliver that for the BBC to pump into people's homes. But can you see the death in Ukraine? Well, probably you can't. Let's help you. Here it is, tiny little article. And this is because at the moment, defences in Ukraine are beginning to crumble. The casualties are absolutely huge, quite disgusting. But the BBC uses the earthquake to bury the bad news. Now, just before we move on, uh, if we're looking at what's happening in the world around Ukraine, I couldn't resist this uh, image, um, <laughs> which uh, the gentleman's expression top right says it all as Biden gave this little clip. Let's uh, hear what he had to say about 
the good works of the USA in respect to Ukraine. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, a test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? Would we stand for sovereignty? We stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny? Will we stand for the defense of democracy? For such defense matters to us because it keeps peace and prevents open season on would-be aggressors and threatens our prosperity. One year later, we know the answer. Yes, we would, and we did. We did. So, Mike, I looked at the faces of the people clapping and I just saw brain dead people. They've got no real compassion for fellow um, human beings. They don't care about the vast casualties in Ukraine. Uh, they're simply clapping the mantra. And the, the mantra, of course, is going to be for the next war, uh, we're told, against China. Um, so the question on my mind is, uh, what about peace uh, in Ukraine? Has anybody been working towards it? Now, I'm, I don't know uh, that we can verify this, but perhaps we've got to believe what he says. This is the former uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett, uh, and uh, this is what he said in an interview that he gave a day or two ago. Uh, both Moscow and Kiev, this is while he was uh, most recently in post, uh, his experience of this, both uh, Moscow and Kiev had made important concessions and were close to a truce agreement. Putin had agreed to forego the demands for denazification and disarmament of Ukraine, and Zelensky had agreed not to seek NATO membership. Uh, he says, uh, we updated the Americans and Macron and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson adopted the aggressive line. Macron and Schultz were more pragmatic and Biden was both, because well, Biden couldn't be anything with both. He's barely able to think. But anyway, the, the key point in this quote is Boris Johnson adopted the aggressive line. So he's singling Boris Johnson out for special treatment here. And he went on to say, uh, I have one claim. Uh, there was a good chance of reaching a ceasefire had they not curbed it. So, uh, David, very briefly, uh, just be interested in your thoughts on this, because uh, he is clearly claiming that uh, that both uh, Ukraine and Russia were close to a peace agreement at one point, and Boris Johnson effectively put the kibosh on it. Yes, I mean, th this is a consistent with what we've seen, the pattern of reactions and when Boris Johnson visited and the policy shifts that followed his visits. Uh, you know, within days or hours. Um, and also, it's a relatively disinterest. It's hard to see exactly what this particular individual would have, what reason they would have to, to make this up. So I, I think this actually has the ring of truth about it. And it, it again, highlights the issue. What has Boris Johnson and the British government been playing at? Um, they certainly haven't shared that with the British people. They certainly haven't shared it with the Ukrainian people. Um, and the result is prolonging the war. Yes. Uh, and another uh, comment here, this time from German politician, MEP, uh, Martin uh, Scherdewan, who's the leader of the left. Uh, and uh, well, let's just translate this. Uh, he, the headline here, it's an, it's an interview with Spiegel uh, saying, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, so Spiegel says, ask him what he suggests about Ukraine. He said, we've got to get out of 
military tunnel vision and towards a diplomatic solution. Pressure must be put on Vladimir Putin so he's willing to negotiate. I don't think too much needs to be put on. I think the pressure needs to be put on uh, Zelensky. But anyway, uh, the federal government could play an important role here, he said, for example, together with Brazil and China, but does not do so because the chancellor is being driven into the military by the FDP and the Greens, especially the Greens. Uh, some have mutated into gun lobbyists there. Uh, and then he was asked, or he, he was asked, the decision on the left is still the dissolution of NATO and the formation of a new security alliance, uh, quotes, including Russia. It uh, stays that way despite Putin is the question. Uh, we must also define security beyond NATO, says uh, Sherdwan. Uh, in view of uh, the dangerous political tendencies in the USA or wars of aggression by NATO member Turkey, which violate international law, one has to consider how to make oneself independent. It's urgently necessary for Germany as the largest economy in the EU to talk to its European partners about how to organize Europe's security itself. So again, using Ukraine to drive forward the uh, European, European defense uh, agenda. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's just interesting to watch all these pieces come together, but clearly the war in Ukraine is not accidental. It's a construct and people are gonna try and benefit from it every which way they can. Yes. Where does that take us? Uh, I think this takes us to you, David. You've been in communication. Yes. Um, yes. So the against the background of Ukraine and the steady increase in pressure for the West, Europe in particular, uh, to rearm um, against that background, we've been asking a few questions about the state of Britain's armed forces. One of them is, quote, we request copies of technical assessments, reports and related correspondence related to the damage suffered by the propulsion system of HMS Prince of Wales, all the information contained therein. So I asked that uh, back in December, back at the start of December, and I, I got um, a, a response to say, well, we should answer within 20 working days. Um, but in this case, we have to have a public interest test and that's tricky. So we need another month so we'll get back to you by the 3rd of February. Um, and if it needs longer, we'll let you know. That was big of them. So during, uh, you know, fair dues, on the 3rd of February, I got another uh, piece of correspondence, further to a correspondence of 6th January. I am writing, so he is writing, so thank you for pointing that out, to inform you that we are still not able to provide you with a substantive response to your request for copies of technical assessment supports and related correspondence. Uh, concerning the damage suffered by the propulsion system of HMS Prince of Wales. I am sorry it is taking longer than originally hoped to conclude matters, and I can only ask for your understanding for the delay. I will contact you again once our requests have been concluded, or by the 3rd of March 2023, if the process has still not been concluded by then. So it seems that the determination, whether knowing what is wrong with HMS Prince of Wales, uh, whether that's in the public interest is a very difficult question for the MOD. Indeed. Well, they've got a few problems, haven't they? Ships which don't go to sea, aircraft carrier not working, no guns because they've all been given away to uh, Ukraine. It's orchestrated chaos and breakdown. But uh, take us on to uh, more medical matters, David. No, this is Debbie. I oh, beg your pardon, Debbie. Sorry. Thank you, uh, Brian. Yeah, now, people might remember a letter that I wrote to the RCGP nearly a year ago now. Um, there you go, you've got it on screen. And the highlighted bit says, I do not know how many yellow cards are submitted 
and I'm not aware of a standard number that should be submitted. The reason the GP cannot give you long-term information on side effects or the exact ingredients of a vaccine is because that information is not available to them. Now that's from Dr. Michael Marholland, that's the Royal College of General Practitioners. So um, clearly we've got an informed, uh, informed consent problem here. But then I found a document, and I'm just going to show you the first page of the document because it's a really big document, Consent and Refusal by Adults with Decision-Making Capacity, a toolkit for doctors from the BMA. This is a really, really big document, so I'd encourage everybody to go and have a look at it. But I'm just going to dig into a little tiny part of it. So part of it there, it says, what information should I share with patients to obtain their consent? And I've just underlined there, options for treatment, including the options of no treatment, risks and potential side effects, and adverse outcomes, including the treatment not working. Then also it says, doctors must not put pressure on patients to decide in a particular way, but should allow them time to consider a decision with potentially serious consequences. It also says doctors must respect a patient's decision to refuse treatment even if they do not agree with it or when it could lead to permanent injury or death. For example, a Jehovah's Witness can refuse a blood transfusion even where this is essential for survival. Providing treatment without valid consent and in the face of competent refusal would leave the doctor open to legal and professional sanctions. Now, this is very interesting because if we just slide to the next slide, what I found really interesting, and I'm going to throw this out to all medical professionals and doctors out there who might be looking at this and watching, because I'd really like some advice and some guidance. It says there, can patients refuse treatment in advance? Yes, it says they can, using an advanced decision to refuse treatment. ADRT. Now, ADR, ADRTs are legally binding in England and Wales, but in Scotland, it's called an advanced refusal of treatment. So, bearing this in mind, how should these be recorded? What should we do to actually, what does this mean, an ADRT? So, if we go and look further and see how they should be recorded and what they're for, it says, here, nevertheless, doctors who are informed of the existence of an ADRT must take steps to find it, and doctors who receive inquiries about the existence of an advanced decision from another health professional should provide them with a copy of the document without delay. And it also gives other options there. Now, my question on all of this is advanced decision to refuse treatment is normally for people that are coming to end of life, that maybe they're very sick and they need to be, that they're going to at some point be put on a ventilator and what would their wishes be in advance? So we can see that the NHS has got an advanced decisions to refuse treatments coupled up with end of care, palliative care website. Um, I think we might just have a, a screenshot of that, hopefully the National Council for Palliative Care. Um, and advanced decisions to refuse treatment. So you can see where this is tied in. However, what I'm thinking, and I spoke to um, a couple of doctors about this ADRT, what is an ADRT? Because if an ADRT is normally used for 
people to make plans in advance of their death. What does it mean in our language? And what it means is a living will. Now, I didn't really know much about living wills at all, but a living will is completely different from an ordinary will when you've actually passed away. So what a living will does is it gives your wishes. Now, hypothetically, and this is where I'm going to throw it out to anybody within the legal profession, any medics out there, anybody from the NHS, could we, therefore, write a living will to say that we refuse um, COVID-19 therapies such as Ronaprev, Remdesivir, monoclonal antibodies. Could we say that we would refuse to go um, to an NHS facility for any other reason? Because if so, that would mean possibly that there would be the option for once this is in place, and you can make it yourself, you know, you don't have to go to a lawyer. So look into a living will, because once you've made a living will, you have to make make that will available to your doctor. So your doctor knows that it actually exists. And I'm thinking to myself, would this lead to possibly some of us having to wear maybe fluorescent armbands to say that we don't want specific treatment. And this is where it takes me back to the article that I was referring to in my blog, by the side of my blog, scared of the NHS, because many, many people are terrified of going to the NHS. So what else might you think about making an ADRT for? Because what's worrying at the moment is we've got false teams in place. So we've got a frailty toolkit that's being used. Now, I don't know who is being scored on these frailty toolkits, but I presume it's vulnerable people, maybe people with disabilities and elderly. And it seems that the NHS will grade us. They'll actually use this clinical scorecard. And it says people with severe frailty can be moving towards the end of life. So when we look at frailty, we see actually who's been scored, who's actually got a score against them, and what does this score mean? Because currently at the moment, if somebody falls at home, they will get a falls team come to see them. Now, that's normally within two hours of falling. And I'm speaking to nurses who are telling me that if somebody's broken their leg or their arm and they're elderly or at home, they're literally being visited, getting a brace and getting morphine and being left at home. And then they're being checked every single day. So this falls team is in place now. Now, the clinical, the clinical frailty score that we just spoke about, what could that lead to? Well, what I found it led to was something was that was triggered by our guest, which is something called anticipatory care. Now, anticipatory care is, this is the term that's used in Scotland predominantly. In England, we can call it advanced decisions, or they sometimes call it anticipatory care. And the anticipatory care pathway is literally what happens if that patient becomes frail, becomes ill? What can we do for that patient in order, in of course, their best interests? And clearly you can see the link there to end of life care. So my question, I think, and we will see a very, very short video on anticipatory care, but my question really for anybody that's in the NHS at the moment, um, I would really like to know, is anticipatory care being twisted a little bit and being used as a, a, a mechanism to support a do not resuscitate notice 
or to push somebody or accelerate them into an end of life care. So my my I think my big question is, should we be freedom of informationing our GPs to ask them, have we been scored on the clinical the clinical frailty score? If we have, what is our score? What does that mean to our general demeanor? Does it mean we've had a DNR placed on us? Does it mean that we've got an anticipatory care program looming for us? What does it mean? So unless we ask these questions, we're never going to know. But there's a very, very short little video. I'm sorry it's a bit childish. It was the shortest one I could find on anticipatory care. Sometimes people worry that their health might get worse in the future. This might be because they are getting older or have noticed that they are becoming more frail. Or some people have long-term health conditions and might think that these will get worse over time. If you're worried that your health might change in the future, there are plans you can make to help you feel more prepared. In the NHS and care services in Scotland, we call this Anticipatory Care Planning, or ACP. It's about talking to your doctor or your nurse or another carer that you see often and discussing treatment, care or support that you might need in the future. You can ask any questions you have, discuss anything that is on your mind and get an idea of what options might realistically be available to you. It can be helpful to involve family and friends in these discussions. All of this gives you a chance to tell people what matters to you. Your doctor, nurse or carer can write this down. Important parts of your plan can be shared safely with other professionals when needed. For example, NHS 24 staff, the ambulance service and local hospitals. Your anticipatory care plan can be changed later on if you want. It is impossible to make definite plans for the future. But having these discussions and writing them down helps your family, your doctors, your nurses and everyone else involved in your care to know what you would like to happen if your health changes. On the NHS Inform website, we have information about anticipatory care planning that will help you learn more about what you can do to plan ahead for the future. Now, I don't believe those discussions are taking place. I don't believe families are being consulted with regards to anticipatory care. I don't believe that families are even being told that DNR um, notices are being issued. So my question really to everybody is, are you subjected to anticipatory care? What is your clinical frail score? And if you don't know, please find out. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, David, you've got some on this as well. Uh, yes. So we have here um, from a UK column viewer um, uh, a, a form um, that, sh that she posted on, on Twitter. And this is a do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation, DNA CPR um, notice from NHS Scotland. And you see here it's been filled in. Uh, by a doctor who's ticked the box, and, and it's only one tick basically in the entire front page of this. And it says CPR will not be successful and is not a treatment option for this patient. So 
This is a this is basically a do not resuscitate instruction for the the NHS, um, and it says explain why patient has significant comorbidities, and um, it said and it then said the patient is aware of this decision. Yes, conversation date and where documented or no reason, lack of capacity, judgment of harm to patient patient not filled in, um, and then welfare attorney guardian relevant is relevant as relevant is aware of this decision, not filled in. And it then says the presumption is that the patient uh, and those to uh, and those close to the patient who lacks capacity will be aware of the DNACPR decision. See decision-making framework for valid exceptions. Where the conversation has not yet happened, the full explanation and a clear plan to revisit this must be documented in the clinical notes. Um, so you see, there are protections and and requirements to communicate. Um, so we'd like to welcome uh, uh, Kelly Easton to uh, uh, to the uh, UK column news today. Kelly, this concerns your grandmother. Uh, tell us, um, um, hey, the the doctor hadn't filled in the form to say whether or not the patient was aware of the decision. Was your grandmother aware of this decision? No. No, we were not aware. None of us, the family, my grandmother. Not, no, we were not aware. It was a so, huge um, shock. So, so this came out of the blue. I, I understand. We've had a chat before. I understand that that uh, your grandmother had had a relatively short stay in hospital, was discharged, and then a little short while after discharge, this came along. Um, so there'd be no no communication, no discussion. Um, I. You know, how did how did your grandmother react when you finally told her that this 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 notice had been issued? She was dreadfully upset. You know, I had to have this conversation over our kitchen table while she was at her lunch, um, explaining exactly what this meant. She was in pieces. She was absolutely destroyed. She kept asking who who would do this and why. You know, it was horrible. Yeah. I, I just just for a little bit of context, your grandmother, she's living independently. She's um, obviously she's elderly, but um, you know she's it, it, she's still she's still living independently and um, isn't ready to uh, cash in her chips yet. Is this is, is this is this the situation? You know, she's she's not someone who would who would have agreed to this had she known. Is that correct? Absolutely not. My granny's a total fighter. She's fiercely independent, fiercely. And she does live at home, though she is elderly. She doesn't have any really big, bad comorbidities. Um, she, she's about as healthy as she can get for her age. Right, okay. So you've obviously, um, uh, you've obviously fought this, um, yeah. and you've gone to the doctor who signed it. Um, so firstly, um, as we'll see shortly, I've got a, a bit of guidance documentation. Um, this has to be an individual decision. Um, did the doctor examine your, your grandmother before he signed this? No, this doctor hadn't seen my grandmother in over two years. Okay, so what in what... Uh, 
uh, what gave him a spur to actually fill this form in? Where did the where did the impetus come from? So he he claimed he'd received an email from the hospital requesting that he do a copy of a DNR that was already in place while she was in hospital on her stay. Um, and did you so know about that DNR? No. 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 Okay. Okay. So he was told by the hospital, and um, I understand from a relatively junior person in the hospital, and Debbie will know more about this, but it's a uh, a physician associate, which is an assistant to a doctor, not actually a, a, a fully qualified doctor, uh, had asked for this, and he dutifully filled the filled the form in without the family being without any examination, without any checks, without any balances, without any communication. So, I mean, we were wondering just how common this is. Is this standard practice? Um, De Debbie, or maybe. Uh, comment on that just in a moment. I've just got a couple of slides very quickly here to show what should have happened. This is from the NHS website uh, uh, talking about these DNA CPR decisions. Um, the, uh, they're saying that uh, you must be told um, that, the, that the form has been completed for you, so they failed there. Uh, the doctor doesn't need your consent, uh, but you have to be informed. Uh, you should be given a chance to understand what it is. They failed in that one too. You should be consulted. Um, the doctor should ask about your wishes and preferences. They failed there too. A DNR decision must be made on an individual person-by-person -person basis. This must be based on your health needs and priorities as an individual. Well, they didn't establish the priorities of your grandmother as an individual, so they failed in that one too. Um, and finally... Uh, they say, what should you do if you're concerned about a DNA CPR form? And this is one of the messages I want to get across to our audience today, that you have had this rescinded and you have co uh, you've successfully fought this. But even on the NHS website, and before they go into complaints procedures, which are pretty much a waste of time in our, in our experience, they say the first thing you should do is you should raise it with your doctor. And if you're still not happy, get a second opinion. So these are sensible things. So you you raised it with the doctor. What what happened then? So the doctor um, obviously was apologising profusely for not dotting the I's and crossing the T's and all that stuff. He he assumed that the conversation had taken place in hospital because that's the procedure. Um, so he rescinded it immediately with immediate effect, and then he printed this email request from the hospital for me to collect, which I did. Um, Monday I received a copy of his notes and that threw up that my granny had been admitted with sepsis and confusion, thereby removing her capacity. Um, this was not her diagnosis, this is not what she was treated for. We were just, it's dark, it's really dark and, and people need to know this is happening. So what would your, what would your um, advice to people watching this who have uh, elderly relatives, perhaps in a similar situation, what would you suggest that they, they do to, to ensure their safety? Ask all their questions. <laughs> Every question, what medications are you given? What are you treating for? I would also take on board what Debbie said about the frailty score. Um, because we don't know how that's being implemented or used. Um, 
ask everything. Let them know you're watching. Please uh, don't mess with my family sticker on your family members. So many people have reached out to say, you know, they, you don't have their relative anymore. They, they didn't have an option and a lot of people aren't aware. This was not on my granny's board. Usually it's on a board and I was on them from the start um, asking questions. What are you medicating her for? You know, what is she being treated for? What's her list of medicines? I made them know I was watching and this was still in place. You need to be asking the questions. And, and obviously you've you've gone back when you've not been happy with the answers and you've pushed back and and you've had them you've had these these, these this position reversed so that that shows what can be done um so just before we finish this section debbie is there anything you would like to add to this um yeah there is actually a couple of things because kelly and i've also spoken and we know that kelly's granny was also put on an anticipatory care medications so I think what we've been saying with regards to clinical frailty and anticipatory care, we need to be asking the questions. Kelly's absolutely right. We need, it's like letting the MHRA know they're watching them by clicking on the board meetings. The similar is going on in hospitals. We don't know what's going on in hospitals. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And I think the idea of a living will, making your wishes clear, right from the start is is probably one way to go for sure but clearly in kelly's case i mean they had to pick up this letter from the gp if that had been kelly's granny going to pick it up from the gp and then opening it not knowing what it was families aren't told the person themselves is not told so please ask the questions watch what's going on because we don't know what's going on behind nhs ward and closed doors yeah so, uh, 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 Kelly, thanks so much. Maybe you'll be able to join us in extra time to talk about this some more. But uh, till then, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, David. OK, David and Kelly, thank you very much for that very informative and poignant um, little piece. Very serious things going on under the surface in UK. UK Column is doing its best to get out the information and truth about this. So help us do this spread and share the information and we've shown you today uh, where things are going with the attacks on GB News, Ofcom, I'll say our old friend in the background simply there as the battering ram of the government to shut down free speech. It's up to all of us to speak out and challenge these people and call them out. Uh, we're out of time, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for extra. Yeah, thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Bye bye.